This is Truth and Focus, your radio program for worldview talk and issues that matter, with Josh Cumston and Gordon Teeson, broadcasting from the studio at Nebraska Christian Schools. Welcome to Truth and Focus. I'm Gordon Teeson, along with my co-host, Josh Cumston. Well, our guest speaker this morning is Justin Peters. You can find out more about Justin. He's got a website. It's just justinpeters.org. Justin and his wife make their home in Edmond, Oklahoma. Justin has traveled throughout the country. In fact, he's been outside of the U.S., I think, in 10 different countries. Speaks quite often on the area of discernment, helping people to understand what things critically they need to look at in terms of the church, the things that are false, the things that are true. And so with that, let's read Justin Peters this morning. What I want us to do now is to kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the Word of Faith movement, the health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel, and we're going to kind of follow along an outline here. We're going to get, look at characteristics of the cults, characteristics of the cults. And this is not exhaustive, okay, but it does hit kind of some of the, the big ones, and I've never been a big alliterator when I preach, but I, I have alliterated this particular presentation. We're going to look at the demotion of God. All of the theological cults demote God. They diminish God, his glory, his deity, his sovereignty. We'll look at the demotion of God. We will look at the deification of man. All of the theological cults deify man. They will ascribe to man characteristics and attributes that reside solely with God. Also, the distortion of the gospel. They will distort the gospel. Every theological cult distorts the gospel. Word of faith does. Mormonism does. Jehovah's Witnesses do. Roman Catholicism distorts the gospel. Also, the diminution of Scripture. That's a big word, diminution, but diminishing Scripture. The diminution of Scripture. The undermining of Scripture's authority. Now, we're going to look at each one of these in turn, and we'll look specifically at how they relate to the Word of Faith movement. Give you some examples of this. Okay, let's begin by looking at the demotion of God. The demotion of God. All of the word faith preachers demote God. They undermine his, his deity, his sovereignty. And as I mentioned in our first session, the word of faith movement, this prosperity gospel, is rooted in the metaphysical cults, Christian science, new age, new thought. I'll give you one example of this, Christian science. You've probably heard of Christian science, right? Have you heard of Christian science? It was founded by a lady named Mary Baker Eddy. Okay, and Mary Baker Eddy claimed that she was physically healed by Phineas Quimby, a guy named Phineas Quimby back in the 1800s. She really wasn't, but she thought that she was. She was a sick woman for most of her life. But from his doctrines, she, she took his doctrines and articulated them a bit further, and from that formed what is today known as Christian science. Christian science is very poorly named, by the way, because Christian science is not Christian and it's not scientific. It's kind of like grape nuts. You know, they're not grape and they're not nuts. Christian science is not Christian and it's not scientific. But there are a lot of Christian science overtones in the Word of Faith movement, one of which 
is the denial of physical symptoms when it comes to sickness and disease. If you have a friend or a family member who is involved in this movement, you might notice that if they get sick, they deny that they're sick. You know, maybe they got a cold and their eyes are watering, their nose is running, they're congested, they're sneezing, the whole nine yards, but you ask them how they're feeling, they say, oh, I'm feeling fine. Oh, I, no, I'm not sick. They deny that. Well, that's Christian science. And Christian science has its tentacles into the word of faith movement. So it, it's this cauldron of cultic theology, and every cult demotes God. They demote God. They diminish God's glory, his deity, and his sovereignty. Now, the prosperity preachers, Benny Hinn and Miles Monroe, say, God can only do what we permit him to do. Dear friends, I would submit to you this morning that God can do whatever he jolly well wants to do. <laughs> and he isn't terribly concerned about whether or not he's got our permission to do it. Now, if God can only do what we permit him to do, who's really in control here? We are. You see, it is a very man-centered system. And any gospel that is centered on man, rather than the personal work of Jesus Christ, is a different gospel is a different gospel and a different gospel does not save and in the spirit of being good Bereans don't take my word for this Psalm 115 verse 3 our God is in the heavens he does whatever he pleases he does whatever he pleases now the prosperity preachers will say yeah but that just means God can do whatever he wants to do in heaven not down on earth whatever the Lord pleases he does in heaven and in earth in the seas and in all of the deeps. Oops. God can do whatever he wants to do. And he isn't losing a great deal of anthropomorphic sleep over whether or not he's got our permission to do it. Anthropomorphism, that's when we ascribe human qualities, human characteristics to God, just kind of to make an analogy, you know. God does not sleep, nor he slumbers, but that's why I say anthropomorphic sleep. God's not losing a lot of sleep over whether or not he's got our permission to do something. He can do whatever he wants to do. Listen to this audio clip from Kenneth Copeland. I was shocked when I found out who the biggest failure in the Bible actually is. You know, everybody asks you, say, who's the biggest failure? They say, Jesus. Somebody else will say, no, I believe it's Adam. Well, how about the devil? He's the most consistent failure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he's not the biggest in terms of material failure and so forth. The biggest one in the whole Bible is God. <laughs> what, what, what? Don't you turn that set off. <laughs> you listen to it. I told you now, you sit still a minute. You know me well enough. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell something I can't prove him by. Can you imagine teaching that God is the biggest failure in the Bible? Is that not shocking? God is the biggest failure in the Bible? Dear friends, this cannot be said from someone who knows God. Okay, this cannot be said from someone who is indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. You cannot be indwelt by God's Holy Spirit and teach these kinds of blasphemies. If the Holy Spirit is residing in a person, he leads that person into truth. He illumines the meaning of Scripture to our hearts. And when we are in error, the Holy Spirit convicts us of that. And if, if Kenneth Copeland 
had been indwelt by God's Holy Spirit for all these many years, and he has taught jaw-dropping heresies. This is just one of, of hundreds of examples I've got. The Holy Spirit would be screaming at him, and yet he seemingly has no conviction about what he teaches. That is not the mark of a Christian. Young people, a Christian, you ought to be able to tell when someone is a Christian. There, there are marks of a Christian, okay? Godly sorrow over sin. Not just a guilty conscience, but a godly sorrow over sin. A desire to grow in truth. A desire to pursue truth. A desire to pursue holiness. And over time, over time, a Christian's life is marked by increasing holiness and increasing understanding and knowledge of the Word of God over time. Doesn't mean we won't have, you know, valleys and things like that that we go through. We all will and do. But over time, increasing understanding of the Word of God, increasing desire for holiness, increasing pursuit of righteousness, increasing amount of discernment because we are constantly studying the Word of God, and when we do that, we will have discernment. This is not what a Christian looks like. Victoria Osteen. Victoria Osteen is Joel Osteen's wife. She says that Jesus was just a man, just a man until God touched him and put his spirit on the inside of him. That is an ancient heresy known as Arianism. Arianism was a heresy in the early church that essentially held that when Jesus came to this earth, he did not come as God. He came as a man, a man who had a very close walk with God but was not actually God in human flesh. And they would teach that Jesus later became God. He kind of grew into his godhood. That's Arianism. And the early church dealt with this heresy in the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, over, well, around about 1,700 years ago. And they voted this heresy down resoundingly. So the early church did away with this heresy centuries ago, and yet the faith preachers want to hold on to it. Now, some of the prosperity preachers would look at this text that indicates that Jesus emptied himself to support their teaching that Jesus was not fully God. That is staple doctrine from the Word of Faith movement, that Jesus did not come as fully God. And they would use Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. But Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. And the word faith preachers take this to say, see, Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of his deity, and he came as just a man. Just a man who had a very close walk with God, but was, he was not actually God in human flesh. And he later kind of grew into his godhood. He later became God. And they say that that's what you and I do. We're men, we're women, and then when we get saved, we become little gods. We'll look at that in just a second. So this is where they get it from, that Jesus emptied himself. Well, did Jesus empty himself? Yes, he did. He did. But the question is, what does this mean? By the way, chase a little rabbit here. If you're ever in a Bible study and the, the teacher, the leader, whatever, asks you this question, if you ever hear this question in a Bible study, you know you're in trouble. What does this verse mean to you? You never want to hear that question asked in a Bible study. What does this verse mean to you? It doesn't matter what the verse means to you. It doesn't matter. What matters is, is what does it mean? It doesn't matter what it means to you. It doesn't matter what it means to me. The question is, what does it mean? 
Now, verses in Scripture can have a number of different applications, but there's only one meaning. Various verses can be applied in different ways. For example, love your neighbor as yourself. There's a lot of different ways you can apply that verse. If your neighbor is elderly, you can go over and you can cut their grass for them. You can take them food. You can visit somebody in the hospital. You, could, you, know, you can do any number of things for a person to show that person love. So there's a lot of ways you can apply that, but there's only one meaning to it. What does it mean? It means to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means. So you should never hear the question, what does this verse mean to you? doesn't matter what it means to you. doesn't matter what it means to me. The question is, what does it mean? So let's look at this. Does it mean that Jesus emptied himself of his deity? No, it does not. It does not. Dear friends, God cannot cease being God. God cannot cease being God. God cannot deny himself. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. There are things that God cannot do. He cannot deny his nature. And so if Jesus ever ceased to be God, then he never was God to begin with. Because God cannot cease being God. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. We call that the immutability of God. If there was ever a time when Jesus was not God, then he never was God to begin with. So it cannot mean that he emptied himself of his deity. Now some say, well, he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes. Be very careful with that. Some say, well, when Jesus was on earth, he did not know everything. There were some things he didn't know because of what he said. Remember when he said, of that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, not the Son of Man, but only the Father. Be very careful with that. Some people take that verse and say, Jesus did not know everything, meaning he was not omniscient. There were some things he just did not know when he was on earth. Is that what it means? Uh, no. No, it's not. Who is God? God is the summation of his attributes. He is the summation of his attributes. His omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience, God knows everything. He is a summation of all of his divine attributes. If you take away even one of those attributes, then he's no longer God. You can't be 90% God. You know, you, you can't be 75% God, 90% God, 93.8% God. Either 100% God or you're not. So if you take away even one attribute, then he's no longer God. So what did Jesus mean when he says, not even the Son of Man knows? Well, let's look at another text. I think we'll shed some light on this. The disciples said to Jesus, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things. This was the disciples speaking to Jesus. Now we know that you know all things. Now, if Jesus did not know all things, what a great opportunity for Jesus to correct their theology, right? What a great opportunity for Jesus to say, now, hold on, guys, Let, let's, let's take a break here. I can understand how you might have been led to believe that I know all things. I can understand how you would think that, but I really don't. I used to, when I was up in heaven before I came to this earth, I did know all things then, but right now I don't. And later I will, but right now for the time being I don't know all things. What a great opportunity for Jesus to correct their theology, right? Did he do that? No, he didn't. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Jesus didn't correct them. 
He affirmed them. Do you now believe? So he's saying, yes, I do know all things. Well then, well, what did he mean when he said, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the Son of Man. What did he mean? It's not that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. It's not that Jesus emptied himself of any of his divine attributes. It's simply that on occasion, Jesus emptied himself of his divine prerogative to exercise some of those attributes. On occasion, Jesus emptied himself of his divine right, of his divine uh, prerogative to exercise some of his attributes. It doesn't mean he didn't have them. It doesn't mean he didn't have access to the information. It means simply that on occasion he chose not to exercise some of his divine attributes. That's what that means. You have to be very careful. We let scripture interpret scripture, okay? We can't take a verse of scripture out of its context. We let scripture interpret scripture. They demote God. This is a quote from Jesse Duplantis. Jesse Duplantis writing in his magazine, Voice of the Covenant, he says, You see, I don't let Jesus carry his cross alone. I believe that when we deny ourselves by putting God and others first, we are actually helping to carry the cross. He's helping Jesus carry his cross. Well, he's about 2,000 years too late. Friends, that's the whole point of the cross, is that Jesus bore it alone because he was the only one qualified to bear it. Who does this man think he is, that he's going to help Jesus carry his cross, really? He's a false teacher. He does not know the Jesus of the Bible. He may know a Jesus after his own image. He may know a Jesus that he's created out of the futility of his own mind. But he does not know the Jesus of the Bible. They demote God. Also, the faith preachers and the theological cults deify man. The prosperity preachers have a doctrine known as positive confession. They teach that we can actually speak things into existence. We have the ability to create our own realities by the words that we speak. If we speak positive things, positive things will come to us. We can create positive things. If we speak negative words, if we speak negative confessions, we can create negative things. Our words have the ability to create. We literally have the ability to speak things into existence. Sounds a lot like God, does it not? God speaks in things into existence. Well, they ascribe to man the same ability that God has. You remember the account of the angel giving the announcement to Elizabeth that she was going to give birth to who? Who did Elizabeth give birth to? Luke's Gospel. John the Baptist. And remember, Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, were a little bit older, right? They were advanced in years. And when Zechariah heard about this, he scoffed at it a little bit, right? Because they were older, and he, he wasn't real sure he believed it. So he kind of scoffed at it. And what did God do in response to Zechariah? He closed his mouth. He made him a mute for six months. For a very interesting take on why God closed Zechariah's mouth, this from Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen says, why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zechariah's negative words would cancel out his plan. See, God knows the power of our words. He knows that we prophesy our future. And he knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop his plan. Wow. So according to Joel Osteen, God was up in heaven looking down, and he saw Zechariah making negative confessions, and God just went into a panic. 
oh my goodness, what am I ever going to do? I wasn't counting on this. And so in a last-ditch effort to save his plan of redemption, God somehow just reached down and closed his mouth and made him a mute. This is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God of the Bible. This is a different God. If they preach a different God, they preach a different gospel. Larry Huck and Paul White, now this flat out denying that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Have they read John 3.16? Friends, this is shocking. We're not talking here about minor theological differences. Okay, We're not talking here about who wrote the book of Hebrews. We're not talking here about was the date of the Exodus in the 13th century or the 15th century B.C. You know, we're not talking here where either mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib. These issues go to the heart of historic Christianity. What one believes about Jesus Christ will determine where one spends eternity. Those of us who are saved, who are Christians, we are children of God by adoption. God has adopted us into his family. We are children of God by adoption. There is only one who is begotten, and his name is Jesus. I'm going to say something that may sound a little odd at first, but bear with me. Young people, it's not enough to believe in Jesus to be saved. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in the right Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. Hey, Muslims believe in Jesus, but they do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in the right Jesus. You've got to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. You've got to believe in the Jesus who has revealed himself to us in God's word. If you trust in a different Jesus, you're trusting in a different gospel. And a different gospel does not save. The Jesus of the word of faith movement, the health and wealth gospel, is a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. Creflo Dollar teaches something called the little God's doctrine. At the heart of the Word of Faith movement is their teaching that if you are a Christian, you are in fact a little God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 from Creflo Dollar. Now, in verse 26 and verse 27, God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And if God now produces man, and everything produces after its own kind. If horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God, and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. The real me is just like God. Blasphemy. Young people, when the Bible says that God created man in his image, that means that as human beings... You and I are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. And we have, as such, being created in the image of God, we have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. None of the other created order has that privilege and ability. We have the potential and the capacity 
through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. But that does not mean we are God. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God. There is only one God, and he will not share his glory with another. And if I remember my Bible correctly, wasn't the desire to be just like God kind of what led to the whole fall thing to begin with? Wasn't that the very first temptation, the desire to be just like God? That's what led Adam and Eve to eat of that fruit, whatever that fruit was, we don't know, but they ate of that fruit. That's the, that was the very first temptation that led to the very first sin. And it led to this whole fallen state. How ironic that the very thing that led to the first sin in the first place is what the prosperity preachers want to teach you as truth. Who else in the Bible wanted to be just like God? Satan did. Lucifer. He wanted to be just like God. He wanted all the worship that God was getting. He wanted it for himself. And he rose up in rebellion against God, and it got him and a third of the angels along with him kicked out of heaven. The little God's doctrine of the prosperity gospel is quite literally a doctrine of demons. And the prosperity preachers teach it as truth. What other theological cult does this kind of remind you of? What other theological cult teaches that we are little gods and we will actually become gods? Mormons. Mormons teach that. A lot of interesting overlap between word of faith, Mormonism, even Islam. A lot of interesting overlap between these various theological cults. And do you know why they teach the little gods doctrine? Why this is so important for them? Because this is why they hold so tenaciously to health and wealth. Because we're gods. And a god cannot be poor. And a god certainly cannot be sick. You see, most people think that this movement, this stuff you see on Christian television, is just kind of some kooky stuff. Health and wealth, you know, Rolex watches, private jets, healing, that kind of stuff. No, these are just offshoots of a much more serious core theological problem with the movement. They, they hold so tenaciously to health and wealth because they teach we are gods. And a god cannot be poor, and a god certainly cannot be sick. But the teaching of health and wealth is one of the things that makes this movement so appealing and yet so profoundly dangerous at the same time. Because the word of faith movement appeals to two of the most basic and universal of all human desires. Most people want to be wealthy, and very, very few people actually enjoy being sick. And the prosperity preachers say, well, if you'll just come to Jesus, if you'll just ask Jesus into your heart, you can have it. You're telling me if I come to Jesus, I can be rich, and I don't have to be crippled anymore? Yeah. Yeah, I'll try Jesus. But is that the real gospel? Or is the real gospel something a little bit more like this? Come to Jesus because you are a sinner. And because of your sin, the wrath of God abides on you. And the only way to have that wrath removed is to repent of sins, turn from sins, and place your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then you will be saved. You will be saved. But on this earth, you're not promised money. You're not promised healing. What are we promised? 
we're promised persecution. Scripture says all of those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some, not most, all. All of those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not quite as popular. You see, it's saying come to Jesus because you can be rich. You won't have to be sick anymore. If you come to Jesus for those reasons or for any other reason other than to escape the righteous wrath of God, you've come for the wrong reasons. You've got a false decision. You've got a false conversion. Prosperity gospel is indeed a different gospel. Well, this wraps up the program today. You've been listening to Truth and Focus. For my co-host, Josh Cumston, this is Gordon Teeson. Thanks for joining us as we encourage, engage, and equip Christians in today's culture war while bringing the truth in focus. Thank you.